I realized this week as I was uh, preparing a sermon and working on the bulletin that um, we're coming close to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. You realize there's only 28 chapters in Matthew's Gospel. Now, of course, it's taken us 46 weeks to get here (laughs) with some breaks in between. But um, it has been, if you were to put them all together, 46 weeks. And it's, uh, it's been quite the journey, and we are getting close to that climax, which of course is the crucifixion. We find ourselves this morning, though, in Matthew 18, at the very end of Matthew 18, in Jesus' discourse to his disciples about the interpersonal relationships that citizens of his kingdom have with one another, and how we react, uh, live together. And uh, we come now to verse 21, where Peter... We read, Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made so that the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. I assume, I would think, that most of you, if not everyone here, knows the story, the real life story from history of the Dutch woman, Corrie Ten Boom, uh, who, along with her family, hid Jews in their home to protect them from the murderous rage of the Third Reich during World War II. And of course, her family was caught and captured and imprisoned. And and Corey and her sister Betsy were imprisoned in the Ravensbrück concentration camp where they were subjected to terrible suffering at the hands of the uh, Nazi guards there. In fact, Betsy eventually died in that camp, slowly starving to death under the mistreatment that she experienced. Corey tells of a story that after she had been released, sometime after the war ended, it was actually in 1947, she was giving a talk to a group in Munich. 
And she was relating her story of courage and survival. And she concluded her talk with a gospel uh, presentation and explained that in Christ all our sins are indeed forgiven. And she, she even told the crowd that God has cast them into the deepest ocean gone forever. And as the meeting ends and she's going to leave, she's but approached by somebody she immediately recognizes. This was a guard. A guard who had mistreated her, who had shown much cruelty towards her and her sister while they were at Ravensbrook. And this is the first time Corey has met one of her captors after her release. And he comes up to her, extends his hand, and he says, You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard in there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And he says, Fräulein, will you forgive me? And he extends his hand. And Corey struggles to take his hand. She sat there for what felt to her for an eternity. And she thought, how can I forgive this one who has caused so much pain and suffering in my life? And she writes, as I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, I could not take his hand. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And so she prayed, she asked the Holy Spirit to help her, and she extends her hand. And when she does, she says there is that peace that passes human understanding that overcame her, and her tears flood her eyes as she chokes out the words, Brother, I forgive you. And you hear that and you wonder, how is that even possible? But it is possible. The history of the church is full of people who have demonstrated incredible acts of forgiveness towards those who have committed unspeakable acts of sin and hatred against them. And Jesus teaches us this morning how we, as his people, as citizens of his kingdom, can indeed forgive those who have sinned against us, even when it seems impossible. And we need to hear these words. We need to hear them rooted within the gospel, because the truth is that sometimes we really do struggle to forgive others. Forgiveness is not an easy thing. And here in our text, Jesus had just completed his instruction on reconciliation and restoration uh, of those who have sinned against us. And Peter now uh, naturally has this question. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him as many as seven times? I mean, that's a good and logical question to ask following what Jesus had just said, uh, that believers are to seek reconciliation, seek restoration with those who have sinned against them. And so Peter wants to know how many times does a person do that? How many times do they go and seek reconciliation and forgive this person. I mean, when is enough enough? Certainly there must be a line. And just because reconciliation takes place, it doesn't mean that the person will never commit sin against me again. In fact, the chances are, because we are sinners by nature, 
And by deed, that a person will sin against you again and again. And there is a need for reconciliation again and again. So how many times do you forgive them then? What's the limit? And Peter even gives a suggestion. He says, seven times? Is is that enough? Now, we might be tempted to judge Peter here harshly. Because seven seems kind of like a small number. We're like, come on, Peter, seven times. But actually... He was being somewhat excessive compared to what was taught in that day. He he was actually trying to understand and anticipate what Jesus might say in light of what Peter has already heard. And rabbinical tradition in that time taught that a person only needed to be forgiven three times. That was it. They sin against you, you forgive them. They sin against you again, you forgive them. They sin against you again, third strike, you're out after that. And Peter doubled that, plus he added one. He said, well, how about seven times? I mean, after all, Peter knew that your righteousness needed to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. I mean, seven's doubling it. That seems like a good number. It seems pretty radical. seems pretty reasonable. I mean, after all, it it really is hard to forgive people. And, and, And seven, that's fair. I mean, our patience has limits. At some point, enough is enough. Forgiveness is hard, and we struggle with it. But Jesus answers Peter, and it's even more shocking and radical than what Peter was suggesting. Forgiveness in Christ's kingdom, as we see here, isn't really a matter of quantity at all. So Jesus says to Peter, he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Jesus isn't saying here literally 77 times after that, that's the end. He's actually saying something else. He's using hyperbole to convey a point. And his point is this, is that forgiveness in his kingdom is extravagant. This is a language of escalation from 7 to 70 that Jesus employs, and it actually goes back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Genesis. And Genesis 4 is where we encounter the tragic story of Cain and Abel. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, The Lord does not accept Cain's sacrifice, his offering, as it is uh, not in accordance to what God had prescribed, and as a result is rejected. And Cain becomes very angry, Uh, Because his brother Abel, who did follow the Lord's command, uh, was accepted. And so he kills his brother. And Cain is cursed by God for his sin. He's fearing that now he's going to be hunted down and killed by others. And so he lodges a complaint to God. And God, ever merciful, spares Cain. And he says to him that if anyone is to lay a hand on Cain, that he will be avenged sevenfold. Well, in that very same chapter, Genesis 4, later on, we're introduced to another man. His name is Lamech. And Lamech was also wicked and murderous. However, he was also incredibly prideful. He boasts that if Cain would be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech would be avenged, you guessed it, seventyfold. And here's why that little account is important to our text. Both Cain and Lamech were full of bitterness and hatred. Lamech especially uh, 
was very heinous. He killed a young man who had offended him. And then he claimed, come at me. If you do, vengeance will be taken 70-fold. But Jesus is reversing the language here. He's saying, forgive your brother or your sister who sins against you 70-fold. In other words, an infinite number of times. That's the idea. It's like us saying a gazillion. It's not a number that exists, but we say a gazillion, meaning we can't comprehend it. It's innumerable. You see, forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven is limitless. Just as Lamech was extravagant in seeking vengeance, so Jesus says his disciples must be extravagant in forgiving those who have wronged them. In other words, we're to forgive others in the same way we have been forgiven by God. And so Jesus launches into another parable to tell this story of forgiveness. And it isn't just a story about a king and some servants and forgiveness in general, though. Behind this story is our story of forgiveness. He's speaking into our experience as believers, our experience of redemption that comes to every person who has fallen before him as Lord and Savior. And what we see is that God's forgiveness freed us from an obligation that we could never meet. So Jesus begins by telling the story that the kingdom of heaven is like not another kingdom, but in this case, an earthly king. And this king, he's working on his books, his records, his finances. He's trying to settle all his accounts, balance the books, see where he is for the next fiscal year. And so he's calling before him all his servants to settle any debts and figure out where they're at and who owes him what. And in verse 23, we're introduced to this servant who we are told owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, when we read these numbers and measurements and monetary values in the Bible, uh, usually we just kind of pass over them because they're so strange, they're so foreign to us that we're not familiar with them at all. I mean, 10,000, that sounds like a big number. Uh, $10,000 would be a sizable debt. When you think about it, $10,000 really isn't that big a debt. Um, in fact, most of us probably have had that or have it now or even owe more than that, uh, especially if we own a home. So $10,000 does not seem too big. What does he mean by this? Well, a debt of 10,000 talents is far larger, exceedingly larger than a debt of $10,000. In fact, if we had this debt, In a modern equivalent, we'd never be able to pay it off. A talent was originally a measurement of weight. It was roughly equal to 30 kilograms, which is about 66 pounds. And it was often used to measure various metals, silver, gold. uh, And because of that, it eventually became a monetary value. So when Jesus speaks of a talent here, he probably means silver, uh, 30 kilos or 66 pounds of silver is likely the value that Jesus is communicating when he speaks of a talent here. But let's put it in perspective in terms of the economy of the day. We know that a talent in the first century was worth about 6,000 denarii. 
We also know, based on historical evidence, that one denarius was the average day's labor for a common worker. So a talent was between 16 to 20 years of wages. So at 20 years, for just one talent to pay the king back, it would take this servant 200,000 years to pay back the full sum. That's not possible. I mean, he might be able to pay back a talent, maybe two, but by the end of his life, he still had a lot to pay back, the majority of the sum. To put it in another perspective, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, he recorded that the annual tax yield of Palestine, the Roman province where they were, uh, was 8,000 talents for the whole region. And so this servant owed more than the GDP of that region. In other words, it was an impossible sum to repay. It would be like you or I owing a debt to someone that is greater than the debt of the United States, which I don't remember what it is now. It's in the trillions. It's unthinkable. We could never repay it. And so knowing he cannot pay the debt, The servant falls before the knees of the king and he begs and he says, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. Now that's kind of absurd considering, well, what we know regarding this debt and how great it is. But as great as the debt was, this king's mercy was far greater. And we're told in verse 27 that out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. And forgave him the debt. The king pitied him. That is to say, he he had a heart of willful compassion towards this servant that actually resulted in an action on his part. And that action was that he released him. He untied him, loosed him, if you would, from the debt, from that to which he was chained. And not only does he release him from the obligation that he could never fulfill, He just forgives the loan entirely. He says it's canceled. The debt is canceled. It's no more. You don't owe me a penny. And only the king could do that. There was no way possible this servant could release himself from that debt. He needed this gracious mercy of the king to wipe the slate clean for him. That is pretty amazing. But Jesus' point is not just to relay this heartwarming and charming story because the story he's telling is your story if you are in Christ. You see, the mercy of our king is greater than the debt we owe. Just like the servant in the story, you have an impossible debt of which you could never hope to repay The Bible tells us that sin is the breaking of God's law. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes the practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What happens when laws are broken? Well, penalties are incurred. A debt, a legal debt towards the one who was uh, sinned against or offended by the lawbreaker is now incurred upon the offender. And the Bible tells us that the penalty, that legal debt of sin, 
for breaking God's law is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But God also tells us in His Word that we are all sinners, we're all lawbreakers, we are all guilty. Again, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means is that all of us owe God a legal debt which we could never repay. We have a debt that needs to be forgiven, a debt from which we need to be released, an obligation which we cannot meet. I mean, even if you could try somehow to render to God the perfect love, the the covenant loyalty, the, the absolute obedience and spotless righteousness that He deserves, and you spent a lifetime trying to do that, you couldn't even manage to pay off 1%. No amount of good deeds, because they really aren't good enough, can ever make up for the bad ones. But thanks be to God, because His mercy is far greater than our debt. Our King Jesus looked upon us with willful compassion and He releases and forgives us not just a part of what we owe, but all of it. So the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church these words in Colossians 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Listen, having forgiven us, not just some, but having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every trespass forgiven The entire record of debt that stands against you is canceled. It is ended. It is erased. It's gone. There's not a penny that remains. Every legal demand of the law that says, throw this guilty sinner into the eternal prison of God's holy justice, that demand has been met for it was nailed to the cross of Christ. The Apostle Peter writes, You were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, God's forgiveness is far bigger than we can even begin to comprehend. When we begin to consider how large our debt of sin was that is now forgiven in Christ, it ought to bring us to our knees in praise and thanksgiving. God's forgiveness has freed his people from an obligation they could never pay. And it is from that forgiveness that we find the foundation, the basis to go and forgive those who sin against us. You see, only a heart that has truly been changed by God's merciful forgiveness can truly forgive others. Without that, it's impossible. 
Without the new heart that comes to those who have confessed and acknowledged their sin debt is so great that they can't do anything to repay it. Without that, they would never be able to forgive others. Kingdom forgiveness comes from those who have been forgiven. And so Jesus takes us to another scene in this story. He leaves the court of the king now. And he takes us to the servants' quarters. And there, this servant, who has just been forgiven, meets a colleague of his, a fellow servant. And this fellow servant, Jesus explains, owed the first one a hundred denarii. Now let's go back to the math for a minute, even though I cannot stand math. I'm sorry, those of you that love it. Let's go back to the math, because this is interesting. A single denarii, remember, is an average day's work. So this second servant, he only owes the first one a hundred denarii. It's around three to four months. That's it. It's a relatively small balance to pay in normal circumstances. And compared to this man's, uh, the first servant's debt, who had been forgiven by the king, it's only one six six hundred thousandth of that debt. But there's no forgiveness in the heart of the servant like there was in the heart of the king. There's only anger. And to get what he believes is rightfully his, what he deserves, he grabs the first servant and he takes him by the throat and he begins to choke him and says, pay me what you owe. And the poor servant begs his colleague for mercy. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now notice the words are actually nearly identical to what the first servant said to the king. But there is a difference and it has huge ramifications. You see, when the first servant spoke to the king, he said, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now the second servant says to the first servant, have patience And I will repay you. And the implication is in the language, I'll pay you what I can. I'll pay you part of it. In other words, he's being more reasonable and more realistic. He's saying, let's set up a payment plan. Let's work this out. I will repay you. I I can't give you all of it, but I, I can give you some of it now and some of it later. That's the idea here being communicated. But the first servant He'll have none of that. And he refused, we're told in verse 30, and he went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. And we are meant to be repulsed by the cruelty, the the brutality of this scene. I mean, how could this man who had been forgiven this impossible debt not extend a lesser forgiveness to this man who owed him such a small amount. And what Jesus is doing here is he's pushing us as his disciples to examine our hearts, our lives. I mean, if we've been forgiven so much that we cannot even number it, are we really willing then to forgive others who owe us a far lesser debt? Mercy that has been given is mercy that is to be returned to others. If we withhold forgiveness to others whose offense is far smaller than our offense against God, 
we aren't walking in step with the gospel. And so Jesus' response to Peter was, forgive your brother not seven times, but 70 times, an infinite number of times, because you have been forgiven of an infinite offense, an infinite debt against God. If you've truly been forgiven of that impossible debt, he will forgive others who have sinned against you. And so Jesus continues his story in verse 31. And we read that when his fellow servants, so they all saw what happens here, when they saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And be sure your sins will find you out. Nothing escapes the eyes of the king. And also it's interesting to notice that these other servants see the lack of forgiveness and, and the cruelty that this man showed towards his colleague and were told they were distressed, greatly distressed, or literally they greatly sorrowed and grieved over this. You see, when there is a lack of forgiveness, often we end up hurting many more people than just that one person. So the king summons then the unforgiving servant back to his courtroom. And there he hands down a verdict. He retracts the prior decision and casts the man into prison. And uh, the word that is translated here, jailers, is toned down a bit in English. It actually means the tormentors, the torturers, those who would exact a punishment upon this unforgiving, wicked servant until he could pay his debt, we're told. But then again, we remember he would never repay this debt. And so the idea then is this is an everlasting punishment. And Jesus concludes with, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is hard to hear. And it's frightening. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't saying this because he is suggesting that somehow once you have truly been forgiven by God, that you will have that forgiveness retracted, that God will break his promises towards you. No, he never does that. We have to understand this as a parable. And as a parable, we need to understand it in the light of all of Scripture. We know that those who are redeemed by Christ are secure in the Father's hands forever. They do not lose that. So what is Jesus getting at here then? Well, he, he wants us to see what has been a constant theme throughout all of Matthew's gospel. And that is the theme of this idea that we must have a new heart if we truly are a citizen of heaven's kingdom. We need a heart that has displayed that Christ-like humility if we are to be part of his kingdom. A new heart, a new heart that displays the forgiveness of the kingdom. There's a couple of things that Jesus says here that make that evident. First is the arrogance of that first servant, the unforgiving one. Because we go back to his plea here for a moment. He says to the king, be patient, I will repay everything. 
But he couldn't. It was impossible. And yet he still thinks that he somehow can. I'll do it. I can do it. I'll pay it. I have the ability to, which is absurd. He did not. There was no way for him to earn the king's forgiveness. He needed the king's mercy. And so what we see is he doesn't have that humility that is needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. That humility that Jesus talks about in the first part of Matthew 18. That acknowledgement that yes, I have a debt. I have sinned. I cannot repay it. I need your mercy. No, he wants God's mercy, but only so he can do what he believes he's able to do which he could never do. Secondly, Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about a changed heart here in verse 31 when he says that we are to forgive our brother or our sister from our hearts. Only a heart that has been forgiven will truly be able to forgive others. But that leads us to a question. All right, I I do believe Christ. I have come before him I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I know I have a debt that I cannot repay. But I still at times find forgiveness so difficult. And honestly, sometimes I still fail to forgive others. Well, what then? Will the Father remove his forgiveness? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. I mean, all of us would admit that forgiveness is hard. All of us, I'm sure, would admit that at times we fail. But God will never remove his forgiveness from you if you are truly forgiven. And you know you are truly forgiven when you have simply done what Christ has asked. That is to come before him in humility and said, I have a debt I cannot pay. And you rest in his mercy. That's it. It's that childlike, humble faith. That's the beauty of God's forgiveness. It's not based on anything we have done, simply that humble faith and repentance. And so that means that when you fail to forgive, what you will do, what do you do? You go back to the king. You go back to the king and you rest once again in his mercy. And you acknowledge your failure. And you acknowledge that it is something you cannot repay. And you walk out of that throne room forgiven. And Peter understood that God forgives our failures as his people probably better than many other disciples. After all, Peter, not long after this incident, will deny the Lord in Jesus' darkest day as he's facing his trial and his death on the cross. But then after the resurrection, Jesus meets with the disciples by the lakeside and they have a little fish breakfast together. And there, Jesus forgives Peter for his failure. And so, when we forgive, fail to forgive others, we can go to our king. We can go to him in humility and know that we will be forgiven. And from there, we go forth and we spread the hope of that forgiveness by forgiving others as we have been forgiven. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that we have so great a forgiveness that has canceled out all the sin, all the debt that we have towards you, and that we stand redeemed. And that even when we fail, you do not retract that forgiveness, for we come to you again, acknowledging that failure and being blessed once again in the joy of our salvation. We pray that you would help us then to take that joy, that joy of forgiveness, and share it with others as we forgive them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.